Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn with me to Isaiah. We will be looking at the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and the uh, full chapter of 53. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and I'll be reading to the end of chapter 53. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not, has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name and the power of your spirit, and we are so thankful this morning for your word, your word which we come to in order to see you 
in order to receive from you, in order to hear your voice speak to us. We pray that this morning you would open our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glory and the greatness, the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ crucified for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon title is Greatness, Majesty, and Beauty of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do this morning is to consider some characteristics about Jesus Christ from this passage. When we come to times of crisis, chaos, danger, and difficulty, one of the first impulses of humanity is to look for a leader. When we find ourselves overwhelmed and overburdened and overpowered, what we do is we look outside and we look for someone or something who can give respite, who can deliver, who can save. The question is, who is a worthy leader? Who is a worthy savior? Our world is in a leadership crisis. As we'll see from Isaiah 52 and 53, that Jesus Christ is not the leader we expected, but he is the exact leader that we need. I'm not going to work through everything in this passage, but I am going to ask you to consider the identity of Jesus Christ. When we gather on Good Friday, we remember the crucifixion. We are not primarily just remembering an event. We are remembering a person, and his name is Jesus And the cross was his glory. The cross was his greatness, his majesty, and his beauty on full display as leader and savior. As we come to this text, a little bit of background. The question throughout Isaiah is how is God going to save a rebellious people? God had made a covenant with this people. You know, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be obedient to me. You will love me. You will serve me. I will care for you. I'll provide you. I love you. I have redeemed you. I've purged you out of slavery. This is how you will worship me. This is how you will love me and love each other. And if you do so, you will be blessed. But if not, if you rebel, if you go your own way, if you choose your own path, if you want to be your own God, there will only be misery and death and decay and destruction. And that's what happened. But God is not a God to give up. He is not a God who does not keep his promises. And he has promised to this people that he will bless them. So the question in the back of their mind and the question which which he's seeking to answer, one of the questions is how is he going to save a rebellious people who have rejected him despite his love and kindness? The book opens like this in chapter one. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He calls everyone, the heavenly council and all of the earth, to stand and listen to the testimony. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The gross picture is of 
children of a faithful father, despising, rejecting, rebelling against him, being corrupt towards one another. So what can be done? And the answer is God will send a leader. He will send the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 52 and 3 is the fourth servant song, we call it. There's four songs in the book of Isaiah that are about this servant. The answer is, I'm going to send someone. The arm of the Lord, which is his power manifest, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to bear the burden. I'm going to shoulder the load, as one commentator said. And the way I'm going to do it is through my servant. His identity is increasingly revealed throughout the book of Isaiah. We read in 1 Peter 2, 21, that this servant ultimately is Jesus Christ. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The disciples understood the suffering servant to be Jesus Christ. He was the one that Isaiah was speaking about. And I want to show you from this text 10 characteristics, 10 sides to the diamond that is the majesty and the greatness and the beauty of Jesus Christ from this text. First, we we need to consider that Jesus Christ is successful. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, ESV says. You'll see a little footnote beside it. And it might say, if you read the footnote, to prosper which is why another translation says, my servant shall succeed. Any great leader and savior is remembered because of the success of their mission. They don't fail. The hope-producing promise of God in Isaiah is that his servant, the one who will save the people from their sin and rebellion, will succeed. This is something that is utterly unique to Jesus Christ. His majesty is totally incomparable because his plans and work cannot be thwarted. That cannot be said of anyone else. That cannot be said of you. That cannot be said of me. That cannot be said of any great military general, any great politician, any great coach, no matter what. Even the greatest of coaches, politicians, military leaders, fathers, however successful they were, had failures as well. And their goals and missions were not nearly as ambitious as God's through Jesus Christ, his servant, was. Which is the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of rebels to their father. Even death could not defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no obstacle greater than death. So, one of the first characteristics we see about the greatness of Jesus is that he is successful. He cannot fail in his mission. And that is something that is totally, utterly unique to him. Second, 
we see that this servant will be exalted. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He is someone that one day, we read in Philippians, everyone will bow down to. They will say that this is truly the most worthy, the most noble being. At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To say that he will be exalted is to say that he is the most worthy, noble person the world has ever seen. And the rest of the chapter, Isaiah 53, describes why. And my prayer and hope for you this morning is that you will see through these words the glory of Christ and you will see that he is truly the most worthy person. I thought that when I was reading this passage, I was just like, there just is no one like Jesus. They just literally, I, I don't even, it just sounds lame saying, and it's like obvious, but I don't know how else to express it. You just read this, and there's just never been a leader. There's never been a being. There's never been a person like Jesus Christ. We couldn't even make this up, as we'll see. We wouldn't make up a leader like this, as we'll see. This is not what we would choose. This is not what we would look for. We're like the Israelites, tallest, handsomest, strongest now. That's what we want. talking about Saul. But Jesus Christ is the most worthy. And the rest of this passage is explaining why. And I want, if you don't know Jesus, if you're here to learn about Jesus, if you're wondering what's all this Jesus talking, I just want, I just want you to honestly listen to these words. Consider what is said about him, what is, what, how the scriptures describe him, his identity, and consider if you have ever met or could ever hope to meet someone like Jesus. He is successful. He is exalted. Third, he was overlooked and rejected. So you would think the next point to follow would be he was received with, with adulation. But this is not how Jesus was received. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Despite now being the most famous individual who has ever lived, which is incontrovertible, it was not always so. Jesus Christ in the beginning was despised and rejected. When he showed up on the scene in all of his glory, the greatest human being that the world had ever seen, he was completely overlooked. He had no form or majesty or beauty. The qualities that we normally ascribe to greatness, that we naturally look to, look for in someone else, he did not possess those things. When we watch those, the movies of Jesus, so often he's like, 
Well, some of them he's like long, blonde, flowing hair, which is certainly anachronistic and wrong on a lot of levels. But even if he looks somewhat Middle Eastern, he's the handsomest guy. He's the kindest looking dude. I could tell you without any of the words on the screen who Jesus is. And, and that's just not what Jesus was like. When the Pharisees heard him finally teaching, like, is this not the carpenter's son? Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Because he lived a life of obscurity. There's nothing about his external qualities, the things that we naturally look for in a leader, that we naturally look to in a savior that Jesus possessed. And it wasn't a problem or a deficiency in him. It revealed a problem and a deficiency in us. Good looks don't save. They fade. Charm doesn't save. Eloquence. There have been a lot of evil, tyrannical people who are brilliant, eloquent, planning, handsome, desirable in so many ways cannot save, even themselves. So raise the question, what is a leader? What is a savior? Well, we weren't looking for him. Several observations about this. What this tells us is that Jesus didn't serve for the praise of men. And, and I could do a whole sermon on this. Meaning he didn't serve people for their approval or their applause. He was completely overlooked. He served, in other words, out of love and for people's good. Who can you say that about? I mean, I think today, who in the world wants to go into politics? I mean, people say it's to serve other people, and there might be like two people who do that. But why in the world would you want that criticism? Would you want that pressure? And so many people do it because they like that praise. They like that power. There's something in it for them, which is why when the writing's on the wall and when there's pressure against them, there's silence. Because there's something they value more than the good of people. There's something they care about more than loving and serving people. But Jesus is utterly unique. Jesus' entire ministry, he actually didn't receive any praise. One of the most powerful, it's all good. Read the Gospels. Read John. One of the most powerful uh, scenes there is in John 6 after he has done this amazing miracle and he has fed thousands of people. And Jesus does what no leader today would do when they have the success and the praise and the approval and the need. People needed him. They were hanging on every word. They were following around. And he turns around to the thousands. He says, you're not here for me. You're here for bread. And then he preaches a sermon about how they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he preaches to them hard words, revealing to them their motivation for being around him wasn't ultimately him. It was their hunger. I am just an instrument of giving you what you really crave, which isn't God. Which isn't me. It's to have your cravings satisfied. And he preaches such an offensive sermon to them. It's the anti-seeker-sensitive sermon. And, and everyone leaves. Even Peter, are you going to leave? His answer's not, no. It's like, well, I thought about it. It's like, where else can I go? It, it crossed his mind. He's like, that is crazy. And I don't understand that. 
but you have the words of eternal life. Think deeply on the fact that Jesus Christ, the most influential, well-known human being in the history of the world, when he was here, was entirely overlooked and ultimately rejected. And I want you to think deeply about what that means, about his own character and his nature being one of ultimate servant-hearted love. No motivation, no gratitude, no appreciation. Rejection. You do all the right things all the time, pour yourself up completely. You never do anything wrong. I can't say that as a pastor. I can't say it as a father. I can't say it as a husband, as a teacher, anything. But you do things right, always, only, all the time. And the end of your life, the fruit of that is total rejection. Who would do that and why? Jesus, because he loves you. Simply put. Don't overlook and reject Jesus. What leader and savior are you looking for today? Don't, for the sake of your soul, overlook Jesus. Don't respond to his majesty and greatness and beauty with dismissal. That would be a fatal and eternal mistake. Fourth, He was acquainted with grief. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. It goes on to say he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He goes on to say he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. After that, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We need a leader who can understand our plight not someone who is removed from the situation and offers us platitudes and pretend sympathies. Throughout this year, we have heard the phrase repeated ad nauseum that we are in it together. And I've noticed that I keep hearing people say that who are just not in it at all. We are not in this together. Are our leaders acquainted with the grief the people they serve are experiencing? One of the great injustices of this time is that the people making the decisions are the very people most removed and insulated from their consequences. You know who hasn't lost a job in the last year? Media. You know who's received raises? Politicians. You know the highest paid people in our city are? Healthcare. They make the most money, have the greatest protections against the repercussions of any of their decisions, while those they lead suffer. This is what you call a conflict of interest. But it is not so with Jesus. He felt the pain and the grief and the sorrow of living in a fallen world. Jesus is a leader who knows and understands the grief and the tragedy of existence. And that changes a lot. Could you imagine right now if our leaders, the first decision they made is, look, if I'm going to close down your business, I'm going to close down mine. If I'm going to require this of you, I'm going to experience this with you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I haven't done. I'm not going to ask you to go anywhere that I haven't been. I'm not going to expect you to go through an experience that I myself am unwilling to go through. Would that not be an entirely different leader? 
add to this the fact that Jesus Christ doesn't deserve any of it. And we do. These are things that you need to think about. You need to think about when you leave here. What does it mean that Jesus Christ was acquainted with grief and sorrow? It also means that Jesus Christ is a leader who is not indifferent to our suffering. He is not callous. He does not give press conferences. He enters in. He comes. He experiences. One of the most powerful texts in Scripture is the shortest verse, and it is that Jesus wept. Jesus wept for Lazarus. And there are mysteries and layers to that text that I can't comprehend. Jesus knew he would raise him. That's what makes it difficult. <laughs> the difficulty isn't that he was sad that his, someone he loved died. That's easy to comprehend. He was human. He was God. What's somewhat a mystery about it all is that he even knew that he would raise him. I think one of the things that tells us in the very least is that he was never indifferent to sin. He wasn't a pragmatist. Don't worry, I'll fix it. It's all good. It was still sad and tragic that Lazarus had to taste death, that his sisters had to grieve. Jesus is a leader who can sympathize, but he is not just a sympathizer. He is not even just an empathizer. He is a conqueror. Because a leader who can experience what we do and do nothing about it is impotent. He has borne our grief, and he has carried our sorrow. Ultimately, he was put to grief by bearing the burden of the wrath of God for sin for us, an unbearable grief born that we might be freed from grief. He not only sees and feels, experiences, and knows, he can do something about it, and he has, and it cost him. Fifth, he was oppressed. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. Even though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Today there is a race to the mountain of the oppressed. Who can be the top of that chart? Who's the most oppressed? Because to be oppressed is to have a morally superior status in our culture. To be the oppressor makes you the moral reprobate. But Jesus Christ was the only truly oppressed person to ever live in one sense. Because he was the only truly innocent person to ever live. Of course, people still commit sins. People oppress others and people are oppressed. But Jesus Christ was truly the oppressed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It was a sham trial. Our culture's current setting aside of the rule of law is just an expression of our privilege. You don't know what it's like if you've grown up in Peterborough and in Canada to not have the rule of law. You don't know what it's like to have a mob show up and execute justice according to them. You don't know what it's like not to have due process, not to be able to defend yourself, not to be able to open your mouth and give a testimony and respond to your accusers. You don't know what it's like 
to be at the receiving end of someone who has total power over you and total malice. Most of us have never experienced that. And therefore, we're cool with just letting the, the things that prevent that from happening go. But Jesus Christ was oppressed. He was not the oppressor. He did not use his power to exalt himself over others, to overpower others. He willingly submitted himself and suffered under others. Six, he was innocent and righteous. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, in his mouth he goes on to say, the righteous one, my servant. There are no scandals, there are no skeletons in Christ's closet. He was the perfect man. We don't even know what it would be like to see him. I said several times this week, I've been thinking about this passage and Jesus and said to several people, I just can't wait to see Jesus. Like, for many reasons, but what will it be like to look at a perfect man? What will it be like to see someone who's only ever loved people completely and totally, which not only means always doing what he ought to do or never not doing what he shouldn't, so he didn't do anything wrong, but he always did what he ought to. Like, he, he always did the right thing at the right time for the right reason. Always. That's all, that's all he's ever done. I've never looked in the eyes of an innocent man, Ever including when I look in the mirror. But one day we will see him face to face and we will see his glory and we will be transformed. And we will look in the eyes of an innocent man for the first time. Imagine that. Imagine a leader who is totally blameless. Seven, he willingly endured suffering. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus' suffering was not simply the product of him being overpowered, but of him willingly laying down his life. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down for others. This is him exercising love to the fullest extent. There was no self-protection. There was no self-aggrandizing. There was no self-defense. He didn't even open his mouth. Jesus Christ had a good case. If you can find anyone who's ever seen me do anything wrong, and you can ask all my childhood friends, you can ask my mom, you can ask my brothers. I'm not talking crimes. I mean, go ask anyone if they've ever seen me do anything in any way immoral. Go run 33 years of records on that one. And yet, he willingly went. He did not resist. He did not fight back. Which leads me to the eighth point. Why? Why did he do that if he was truly innocent? Why did he allow himself to suffer such injustice at the hands of men, to be oppressed? Why did he do this? Well, he did it for others. He suffered for others. He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the great exchange in our place. This is the epitome of love. This is the epitome of taking responsibility, not blaming, not abdicating, and not only taking responsibility for himself, taking responsibility for others, things that he didn't do, crimes he did not commit. Jesus wasn't pierced for his transgressions, but for ours. He wasn't crushed for his iniquity, but ours. He wasn't chastised because of anything he'd done wrong. He wasn't wounded for things that he had done wrong, but for our healing. The condition of Israel is a condition of all mankind, Paul tells us. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We have said that I will be God. I will be leader. I will be savior. I will be the arbiter of truth. I'll determine right and wrong. I'll determine how I want to live. I'm going to determine reality. I'm going to go my own way. That's rebellion. And that leads to death. That's iniquity. That is leading away from peace. That is wounding is going astray. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is his task. This is his mission. Not winning another campaign, not making decisions so that he can get another reelection, not doing things so that his name could be written in stone in our place for our sins. You know what's missing from leadership? Love. Love is the hallmark of leadership, and Jesus is the epitome of love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ suffering for the sins of others in their place is the greatest expression of love the world has or will ever see. Nine. He doesn't just suffer for others, he actually saves others. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Christ is the greatest, most majestic leader because he can accomplish what nobody else can. He can defeat our greatest enemy, death. He can remove our greatest threat, the wrath of God. He can take care of our biggest problem, which is sin. He can alleviate, bear the punishment, which is death. He saves us from all of those things by bearing our iniquities, pouring out his soul unto death, bearing our sin, standing in our place, interceding for us. 
one of the most shameful tactics in the last year has been to blame the people you serve for the problems that are happening. But Jesus is the opposite of that. Jesus Christ bears the problems of his people, even though he doesn't deserve them. He is the righteous one, as we saw, the one who always lives perfectly in accordance with God's law, according to how we love God and how we love others. The only truly righteous one, the sinless, perfect lamb of God. And he dies that he may make others be accounted righteous, declared to be righteous. This is the great exchange. This is the beauty of the gospel, that those who have sinned, those who have rejected, those who have rebelled, those who are unrighteous, who have not loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, who have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, can be accounted, considered, declared righteous in God's eyes. This is the greatest gift that we can receive, the forgiveness of sins reconciliation to our God. Jesus Christ not only sympathizes, he not only suffers, but he actually saves. No other leader can save that, can say that. Leaders can solve little problems, you know, debt, healthcare, whatever it is, maybe, but they can't take care of death. And Jesus can. They can't remove your sins, but Jesus can. They can't reconcile you to your God, but Jesus can. Lastly, Jesus is an amazing, the most amazing, majestic, the greatest person because he is satisfied by this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied We don't have much time to dwell here, but I, I thought about this and I wanted to include it. You see, it's easy to think about Jesus Christ as someone who, in kind of a mechanistic way, like a math problem. Here's our problem. Here's the answer. But this verse tells us something of the heart of Jesus. of the love of Jesus, of the tender mercies of Jesus. That when Jesus suffered in the place of others who crucified him, who hated him, who rejected him, who rebelled against him, remember Jesus did not come into the world for the righteous because there are none but the unrighteous. He didn't come for the good guys in a world full of bad guys. There's only bad guys. And one of the greatest dangers we have as humans, especially when we suffer and when we suffer wrong, is to become bitter. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And bitterness, we read in the New Testament, defiles, it destroys you. It leads to blame and anger and resentment and accusations and murder. It's a horrible thing. And it is something we are all prone to. But Jesus Christ, though he was innocent and righteous, though he was rejected and despised, though he was 
a suffering man unjustly, looked up from that, and was satisfied. What person, after they suffer such things so unfairly and so unjustly by people who are totally ungrateful and unknowing, would say such a thing? And I feel like I can't even begin to think about this, but I just wanted to point it out as one of the many glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. I stub my toe and I get angry. I feel this smallest slight and I feel resentment. And Jesus Christ suffered the most unjust, the most injustice that any human ever has because he was totally sinless. And he, out of the anguish of his soul, is satisfied. The writer of Hebrews says this, that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy that was set before him was to see that his father was glorified through the obedience of the son. It was to see the people that he loved ransomed from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. I think I'll summarize it by saying this. It's an amazing thing that the mercy of God is that his son died for us and he won't hold it against us. I'm not like that. Jesus is not the leader and the savior we imagined or desired, but he is everything that we need. He is not what we view as great, and yet he is without parallel in greatness. He is not what we consider majestic or beautiful, and yet his majesty and beauty are without equal and without bounds. Don't dismiss him, and don't reject him, but receive him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have seen the glory of your Son from heaven. We thank you for your Spirit's work in our life, that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope, that you have given us eyes to see the glory of Jesus, the man that we would otherwise have rejected and looked away from, and indeed, we all have. We thank you that you have shone into our heart to give us the light of Christ, that we can see him for who he truly is, so we could see his greatness and his majesty and his beauty. We thank you for the cross where he was exalted and lifted up, where his worth was on display. The reason that one day we will all bow down before him because he suffered unto death. Worthy are you, for you are slain. Oh God, please help us to treasure, to know, to be satisfied with the worth of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.